Hey, remember in the first book how wizards were this allegorical stand-in for an oppressed group of people? Well, I hope you don't give a shit about continuity because in this book, it's exactly the opposite. Alright, chapter 7 is called Mudbloods and Murmurs. This chapter sounds like the name of, like, a really terrible hip-hop album by, like, DMX or something. Or, like, one of those Nas albums that isn't good. Like, okay, so let's talk about Nas albums for a second, because that's what we do on the Darren Tries to Understand Harry Potter podcast. We talk about rappers from the 90s, as the name would imply. So obviously Illmatic is, is a classic, right? No one denies that. Even when Jay-Z was beefing with Nas, he was like, yeah, okay, that one is good as hell. The rest of them are crap, but that one's really good. Which, side note, is a good technique if you're arguing with someone. It establishes trust. If Jay-Z had been like, Illmatic is overrated or something, people would be like, wow, that's wrong. I don't want to listen to anything else this guy has to say. So instead, he's like, hey, Illmatic is a classic, but everything else you've done is terrible. And then people are like, uh, yeah, maybe that's a, little, that's, that's a little true. But here's the thing. Nas's next album was, it was written and, well, first of all, I mean, you're just not going to live up to the hype of Illmatic. And you're in a catch-22, because if you put out an album that sounds just like Illmatic, everyone's going to be like, oh, he only has one shtick. But then if you put out something different, people are going to be, like, disappointed because it wasn't what they were expecting. So, but it, go back and listen to It Was Written. It's really fucking good. The real problem is that he then had, like, two just, like, bad albums after that. And so then Jay-Z could lump It Was Written in with those bad ones and then have that line about a one-hot album every 10-year average. So, like, for, well, first of all, Jay-Z, six years, not ten, okay, buddy? And then it was, it was two hot albums every, every six years, which is, you know, an album every three years, which is pretty fucking good. So, um, mud, bloods, and murmurs. The chapter opens with Harry having a, uh, like a stan, for lack of a better word. That dude Colin Creevy. More like Colin Creepy, am I right? I'm, she meant, she meant to do that? Okay. Uh, so he's like stalking Harry Potter, and... I'm not sure how the author is trying to get us to feel about this. Like, is it supposed to be, like, funny or scary or weird or off-putting? And then you find out quickly that it's really just a expositional contrivance. Uh, at least for now. So, and then we also find out that Ron's wand is still dysfunctional. And it, like, hits Professor Flitwick in the face. And it creates this big green boil for some reason. Is there not a single wizard at this fucking wizard institution that can fix this thing? Harry breaks his glasses and some, like, average wizard is just like, oh, here, poof, fixed. But apparently there's no hope for Ron's wand. And so then, uh, Harry is sleeping and this dude wakes him up and is like, it's time for Quidditch practice at five in the morning for some reason. And if you recall, Quidditch is that nonsensical game which sounds like it was made up by someone who, like, heard about the concept of a sport one time and then decided to make up their own. And so on his way to Quidditch practice, he runs into that Stan kid 
And Stan is, like, the most annoying kid ever. He's worse than Bossy Girl. He's worse than the weird sad kid who lost his toad. He's even worse than crappy Dracula kid. So I imagine that this gives us some insight into how J.K. Rowling views Harry Potter fans. So Stan is like, Harry Potter, can I have your autograph? I just love your work against that Voldemort. How you don't die every time you see him. Classic. Uh, huge fan. I've read all the books, seen all the movies. I even went to that Universal Studios theme park one time. I'd say I'm more of a slither puff, you know, somewhere in the middle. And also, I ship you and Bossy Girl. And also, I watch YouTube videos about uh, how Professor Flitwick is, like, alt-right or something. I don't know. And then you realize really quickly the purpose of this annoying kid is that he just asks a bunch of incredulous questions about Quidditch, which then gives Harry, like, a reason to explain the rules again in case you haven't read the first book. And so Stan is like, is it true there are four balls and two of them are somehow anthropomorphic and have desires and shit? And Harry's like, "Ah, just read the fucking first book, chapter 10 or whatever. It's all in there. And so then we meet the rest of the Quidditch players and there's the Weasel Brothers and Oliver Wood, which that sounds like the name of like a parody of Oliver Stone. Like if you're trying to make fun of Oliver Stone, but you don't want to call him out by name. And then there's some other random players. There's, like, Kristen Bell from Veronica Mars and uh, Angelina Jolie. I think I wrote that down correctly. And so Oliver is like, okay, team, first of all, Lee Harvey Oswald was not acting alone. Open your eyes, sheeple. The government is hiding things from you. Second, I am implementing a new training program for Quidditch that will make all the difference. He actually says it will make all the difference. But, like, hey, I read the first book. They won all their games because fucking Harry Potter just immediately caught the snitch every time. It was the fucking dumbest shit ever. He should be like, hey, team, none of us need to do jack shit because Harry Potter is going to catch the snitch every time, and that's the only part of the game that even matters. So then the book reminds us that despite winning all their games... They didn't win the trophy because they had to forfeit their last game because Harry Potter was unconscious. And in this idiotic universe, when one of your players can't play a game, you know, something that happens literally every day in real sports, you forfeit and lose. So Oliver Stone's game plan should be to have everyone just making sure Harry Potter remains conscious and healthy. And so then they practice and that dumb stalker kid is taking pictures and everyone is like, who is that weirdo? And Harry's like, beats me. Even though he does know how to do that. He can lie about this. He can't lie about, uh, he can't lie to that slave elf guy about, like, not going to Hogwarts. Remember that? I remember that. It was dumb as hell. And so then all these Slytherin dorks come onto the field, and Oliver Stone is like, but we booked this field for for our practice today what's going on and the slytherin dorks are like well too bad because we have a note from snape who has never shown any sort of bias to slytherin and it says that we can be on this field so fuck off with your i book this shit first bullshit we have priority because we need to train our new seeker and everyone is like you have a new seeker and then they're like yes you know luscious dracula man well his son crappy dracula kid is our new seeker and he's probably going to be good but my guess is not as good as Harry Potter. And so then it turns out that Luscious Dracula Man bought fancy new broomsticks for all of Slytherin. He's one of those guys. He's like that shitty, like, real estate developer, Little League dad, you know? One of those guys. They're like, Johnson Properties is sponsoring my son's team. And then all their equipment is, like, new and nice. And it says, like, Johnson Properties. We keep it real. Estate. Or some something dumb. 
And then Ron and Bossy Girl come over, and shitty diss alert. Here comes a shitty diss from crappy Dracula Kid, king of the shitty disses. He says, I bet you could raise money for new fancy broomsticks if you want new fancy broomsticks by selling your old broomsticks. I bet a museum would bid on them. And everyone's like, burn. That's a burn. And then Bossy Girl is like, well, at least Gryffindor didn't have to buy their way into this sport. They all got in on pure talent. And everyone's like, uh, you're not even on the team. What are you doing? And then it, that's, a, that's a weird comeback because it's like they didn't use their unearned economic privilege like you did. They used their unearned genetic privilege. Recall that Harry Potter had never even heard of Quidditch, but he instantly became the best player at the school because he was like a natural. And so basically, they're all just arguing over shit that none of them have any control over. I guess innate talent is is supposed to be more respectable. Like, that's supposed to be like a more respectable bit of luck than family wealth. Which is a really weird worldview to be teaching kids, to be honest with you. Like, obviously I agree that you shouldn't really take any pride in coming from wealth. And in fact, if anything, you should be embarrassed. But you should also not take any pride in something that you're just innately good at prior to any work or training. Like, you should maybe appreciate that about yourself and work to develop it so you can use it to your, the best of your ability. But that's true of family wealth, too. So I don't understand the dichotomy that this book is trying to shove down our throat here between being a natural at something and having wealth. Because those things are both totally out of your control. And then... Crappy Dracula Kid gets really mad at Posse Girl, and he's like, No one asked you, you filthy mudblood. And this is basically like a racial slur. So everyone gets upset, and Ron tries to like shoot Crappy Dracula Kid with his wand, but the wand is broken, and so he shoots himself in the stomach, and everyone's like, Oh no, Ron, are you okay? And then he fucking tries to speak, and instead he belches and slugs come out of his mouth. That's gross as fuck. What the hell am I reading? And then the Slytherin team thinks this is just hysterical. Because it's a whole house of sociopaths, remember? It's like, the dude is coughing up slugs, which should elicit one of two responses. One, abject terror. And two, absolute disgust. But no, these Slytherin motherfuckers, they just yuck it up. And then the book describes them as being paralyzed with laughter. Which, like, that's not, that's not what laughter does. Laughter makes you shake uncontrollably, which is literally the opposite of paralysis. You could be paralyzed with fear. And then Ron just keeps, like, throwing up slugs. And so they have to take him to Hagrid, the groundskeeper, because that's who you seek out in an emergency, not the school nurse or whoever. Uh, and then the stalker kid is like, what happened? What's the scoop? And Ron is still just vomiting up slugs, just constantly vomiting up slugs. And the stalker kid's, like, taking pictures and shit. And so they take him to Hagrid's, but Sue Grafton is there, and he's saying some weird cryptic shit to Hagrid. And so, in order to not be seen by Sue Grafton, they hide in the bushes? You know, because this isn't an emergency or anything. Just throwing up slugs. And then Sue Grafton leaves, and they take Ron to Hagrid, and Hagrid's like, Oh, the old slug vomit routine, eh? Well, better out than in, I say. Which, yes, okay. Thank you, Hagrid. Better to be systematically throwing up slugs than ingesting them. That is some good insight. This is a good move, by the way. You could do this in a lot of situations. If someone comes up to you with a problem and you don't know what to say, all you need to do is just think of a worse problem and then say that their problem is better than the worst problem that you thought of. 
You know, you got hit in the head with a hammer better than two hammers or like a, a bigger hammer. You just, you just do that. Okay, so remember how last book there was this like very tortured reading of race and or sexual orientation into the muggle wizard dichotomy? And I thought it was really dumb because wizards didn't seem to be systematically oppressed in any significant way. Uh, so far as I could tell, it was just a few random weirdos like Harry's aunt and uncle who just hated wizards out of some bizarre personal experience. And how this this setup was like actually bad for how we conceive of racism, because viewing racism as a matter of individualized, personalized experiences and prejudices uh, is a way of ignoring larger systemic issues. Uh, so remember all that? Okay, good. Because now what the book is doing is going, okay, how about this? How about let's just pretend that stuff from the first book didn't happen. Now, the oppressed group is muggles. It's not wizards like it was in the first book. We're going to switch it up. So this actually makes Harry's aunt and uncle even more nonsensical than they already were. Now they're just randomly insane people. Before, they were at least trying to highlight in like this really clumsy, heavy-handed way this role of the bigot. You know, like, in book one, Uncle Vernon was... He, he, like, he definitely voted for Brexit. He, like, for sure owns a MAGA hat. He's one of those guys. But now, because of this shit where muggles are the oppressed group, we actually move away from this, like, neoliberal colorblind ideology, and instead we find ourselves firmly in this bizarre, conservative, revanchist, white nationalist ideology. Right? Like, oh, yeah. Wizards are the real racists. So earlier when I said the book was fascist, wow, I was right about that. I didn't even know how right I was. and But I think what the book's doing, it's like it's trying to set up this sort of double worldview. It obviously, like, it wants to have its cake and eat it too because it doesn't want to actually say anything significant about actually existing racial hierarchies. It just wants to... It's doing that, like, To Kill a Mockingbird thing where it's just like, well, as, as long as we all just get together and, you know, love each other, everything will be fine. So, so we have the, the muggle world where wizards are the oppressed group, and then we have the wizard world where muggles are the oppressed group. Isn't that convenient? So there isn't any sort of historical analysis of the way in which these two separate groups have come to become antagonistic towards each other the way you might do if you were actually trying to say something intelligent about the construction of racism in contemporary Western society. So, fine. Not how actual racism works. We have you know, a history of Western imperial domination that just doesn't allow for this sort of nice, pat, easy-to-understand view of racism that this book is presenting to us, but it's a fantasy book. And in this fantasy book, an oppressed group of people with special powers can create their own society where they then recreate those same systems of oppression, but in reverse. Okay, fine. This is literally, by the way, the major fear of every reactionary white nationalist. But the book, at least right now, it's trying to say something about race relations, and it sort of accidentally says something that it didn't... Well, alright, we should back up. So, obviously, Mudblood is coding itself as functionally similar to the N-word. It's a word that is out of bounds, as it were, of, of traditional discourse. And I think that this is important. We need to come back to this idea, though, because I need to explain something that happens right after this. And this is when Ron moves on to saying, basically, hey, we're all mixed blood. There are very few pure-blooded wizards anymore. We would have died out if we hadn't mixed with the muggles. And this is where the book basically exposes itself 
very blatantly of being race essentialist. Wizards are a race, muggles are another race, but some historical contingencies made interbreeding necessary for wizards to continue their line. Ron is essentially espousing thinly-veiled white nationalism. So to the extent that we think Ron is a good character, and that the things that he has to say are things that we should take seriously as moral messages that are worth a damn, here is essentially what he's saying. Wizards, read, white people, had to make compromises with muggles, read, other races, in order to ensure that the wonderful traits of wizards, read, western civilization, could survive. This is unbridled white supremacy. This is, I mean, the mask is off. We don't even have the neoliberal sheen anymore. It's just pure white supremacy coded onto wizards and muggles. So then we go back to this mudblood discourse. This is an actually interesting and fascinating thing because I think it maps onto the way that white supremacy maintains functional power. They aren't mad about crappy Dracula Kid's underlying ideology. They, in fact, share the basic tenets of his ideology. They aren't mad that he thinks wizards are superior to muggles. They agree with him on that point. What they're mad about is the way in which he would so brazenly expose the tacit underpinnings of their worldview. That he would break the discourse. That he would puncture the civilized norms. Which, to the neoliberal worldview, is far worse than the damage caused by the underlying ideology. Because breaking through that sheen is... You know, that's that's sin number one. This is basically the the whole problem with that, like, never-Trump Republican movement. A lot of their objections to the Trump administration boil down to, like, I don't like the boorish, uncivilized way in which he shouts things that we would prefer he whisper. So you have these, like, hashtag never-Trump people who are totally cool with extrajudicial torture, upward distribution of wealth, escalating pointless wars, you know, draconian immigration policies denying access to healthcare, slashing the social safety net, immiserating the lives of millions of people, as long as you do it politely. So Ron and the gang, their problem with crappy Dracula kid isn't that he's a wizard supremacist, they all are. It's that he's crude about it. So going back to the title of the episode, Mudbloods and Murmurs, it's accidentally this sort of perfect title, because Ron and Hagrid's big complaint is that crappy Dracula shouted his wizard supremacy, rather than murmur it like a respectable wizard would. But, and this is where we need to talk about sort of, you know, hermeneutics and the way that we interpret texts and art, obviously a text can mean several different things, have several different interpretations, and, and to me, the interpretation that you should go with is the one that is best, right? So to me, it's kind of shitty to interpret something negatively and then be like, ah, I don't like that, because what you're doing is you're just rejecting your own negative interpretation. So you give it the best interpretation possible, and then if you don't like that, then then it's fine to reject it. But, so here, the best interpretation of this, to me, to my mind, is Ron, as he is spouting this sort of very wizard nationalist ideology, he's also literally vomiting up slugs. So I think that that's the radical reading of the book here, is that Ron's words are in fact being indicted by the action of vomiting up the disgusting slugs, he's spewing disgusting shit literally and metaphorically. So I think that's pretty cool. So, um, Harry goes to detention after this? Like, I don't know how to transition out of that energy. Harry goes to detention. Turns out he has to help Sue Grafton read fan mail. And while he's there, he hears this weird voice saying, Come to me, let me rip you, let me kill you. 
And Sugarefton's like, I don't hear anything. And Harry's like, really? You don't hear the faint sound of Voldemort in the distance? And Sugarefton's like, nope. And then Harry leaves and he tells Ron, and Ron's like, that's weird. And Harry's like, sure is. And that is the end of that chapter. And also the end of this episode.